Blog Talk Radio. If I ever do anything right, I want to be so good to this, this little life. If I ever wake in the night, I want to know I tried my best for this little Progressive Parenting Radio is a production of Progressive Parenting Network and GinaKirby.com. No material on this radio program should be considered medical advice. This is a listener-funded program. And now, your host, Gina Kirby. Hello. Being a parent is the hardest job you'll ever have. Progressive Parenting understands this and wants you to know that you are not alone. My name is Gina Kirby, and I'm your humble host. I am not a parenting expert, but as a doula, a childbirth educator, a La League International breastfeeding peer counselor, and concerned parent of four children, ages 12 years old through 19 months, I understand the difficulties involved with parenthood. So I'll be inviting doctors, nurses, family workers, authors, and experts from different fields to answer your parenting questions. Now, because this is a progressive talk show, we will broach topics and air opinions that you as a parent might not otherwise hear about through the mainstream media. The mission of progressive parenting is to inform, not to preach, to share, not advise, and to connect, not alienate. Progressive Parenting Radio is a listener-funded program. If you enjoy the information we bring to you, please consider donating at GinaKirby.com or at ProgressiveParentingRadio.com. Progressive Parenting Radio has been broadcasting for nine years, bringing quality information to listeners like you. We would like to thank our listeners and our sponsors for supporting our mission to bring great information to great people. Many thanks to our sponsor, doulabook.com, the best doula website start here. Doulabook wants you to know that they will be releasing doulabook 3.0 very soon. Keep an eye out for what's coming up by going to doulabook.com. Also, doulabook has been uh, has just released a new doula listing service, so go to the doulabook Facebook page to learn more. Uh, that's doulabook, all one word. The number to call in during the program is 347-850-1642. That number again is 347-850-1642. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, please press 1 and it will alert our producer that you have something to say. I am so pleased and honored and excited uh, to introduce today's guest. My guest is Dr. Sarah J. Buckley. She is a New Zealand-trained GP family physician with qualifications in GP obstetrics, and family planning. She is the mother of four home-born children and currently combines full-time motherhood with her work as a writer on pregnancy, birth, and parenting. Dr. Buckley's work critiques uh, current practices in pregnancy, birth, and parenting from the widest possible perspectives, including scientific, anthropological, cross-cultural, psychological, and personal. She encourages us to be fully informed in our decision-making, to listen to our hearts and our intuition, and to claim our rightful role as the real experts in our bodies and our children. Oh, her best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, A Doctor's Guide to Natural Childbirth and Gentle Parenting Choices, uh, was published in 2009 and built on her acclaim for sedition, uh, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, The Wisdom and Science of Gentle Choices in Pregnancy and Parenting. Dr. Buckley has an ongoing interest in the hormones of labor and birth, and this has culminated in her groundbreaking report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, published with Childbirth Connection, a program of the National Partnership for Women and Families. And without any further ado, I want to get right to Dr. Buckley. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Gina. It's lovely to meet again. We've met, met in person, which was delightful as well. So it's lovely to uh, to meet on the airwaves as well. <laughs> right. It was, um, it was, it's always really nice to get a chance to see you in person, what with us being worlds apart. Um, it was really exciting. The last time I saw you was at the Human Rights and Childbirth. Uh, retreat that yes. was amazing 
and and your baby. <laughs> oh yes, that's right. And now he's he's 18 months old now and toddling around and talking. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. I know. I just uh time flies. So, I want I have we have so much to talk about today. Um and I I wanted to start right off the bat um talking about uh this idea of ecstatic birth and what that means and how is it possible? <laughs> I know a lot of um a lot of my friends would say that uh, ecstatic birth can't be a real thing. So I'd love to talk more about that, if we can. Yes, well, what I say is that ecstatic birth is nature's hormonal blueprint for labor. And by the way, if you want to get all the detail of what I'm talking about, if you go to my website, sarahbuckley.com, there's actually a free ebook called Ecstatic Birth, Nature's Hormonal Blueprint for Labor. So I recommend if you're interested that you go there and download that book in my um, subscribe tab Um, but what I say is that birth is designed to be an ecstatic experience if you look at the hormonal physiology so the hormones that make labor and birth happen also have powerful psycho-emotional effects in our brains as well and you know when I talk about birth in this way I'm talking about birth actually amongst all mammals and part of it you could say mother nature's intention or god's intention if you prefer with this ecstatic hormonal cocktail is that immediately after birth when the mother meets her baby or the mother of any mammalian species meets her babies for the first time that she's in the ideal hormonal state to form a, a strong bond with those that that baby or those babies you know um michelle O'Donc calls it you know um the beginning of a great love affair and mm. what happens for us as human mothers is we have the same um, release of these hormones within our brain as well as within our bodies. And they switch on, well, they do a lot of really helpful things in labor, like give us natural pain relief. That's the hormones oxytocin and beta endorphins. You've probably heard of endorphins. Yes. But endorphins also give us this sort of put us into this rather altered state of consciousness. You know, it's like um, people, it's like a natural high. It's like a runner's high. And in that altered state of consciousness, for some women, it does abolish the pain of labor. For most of us, it puts us into this state where we could kind of, what I say, transcend the stress and pain of labor. It helps us to deal with it. So those are some of the benefits in labor, as well as actually causing some of the processes of labor and birth, like the contractions of labor, which are caused by oxytocin. And some of these hormones also benefit the babies by um, preserving blood supply to the baby, helping the baby to deal with the stress and pain of labor, because you you can imagine it's probably a big event for the baby as well. But as I said, they really come into their own in that time immediately after birth. We have peak levels of all of these what I call ecstatic hormones, that's oxytocin, hormone of love, beta endorphins, which are hormones of pleasure, um, adrenaline and noradrenaline, also called epinephrine and norepinephrine, hormones of excitement. And then there's prolactin, the breastfeeding hormone, which also is a hormone of bonding, a, a, a low stress hormone that reduces our stress levels. So, you know, the the hormonal physiology of labor and birth is designed to get us into this state at the moment of birth and when we meet our babies for the first time. And in fact, for the whole hour after birth, they have these peak levels such that we fall in love with our baby. We're rewarded because these hormones activate the reward centers in the brain and we have this intrinsic pain relief. You know, those mamas listening to this program that have experienced like a natural physiologic labor will know what I'm talking about. You go, oh my God, I'm so in love with my baby. That was so wonderful, I could do it again. Um, if I can do this, I can do anything. It's a very empowered feeling that you know that's due to the effects of these hormones in our brain, and that's why I call it ecstatic birth. And I say that it's nature's hormonal blueprint to ensure not just that mother and baby get through the birth as safely and easily, you know, um, efficiently as possible. There's a lot of efficiency built into the system, but also that they then form a strong bond. And, you know, if you think about it with other mammals, I mean, the you know, a mama mouse or rat doesn't go to a prenatal class to teach her how to look after her babies. You know, it's all got to keep mm-hmm. the way after birth. So these hormones also switch on instinctive mothering behaviors in all mammals. Hmm. I, I know that feeling of where you said, like, I could do anything now. And I, I those were the words I, the exact words that I uttered after my second daughter was born, I'd had my first in the hospital, and then I had her at home. And uh, and I don't even remember saying it. I just know that I did because my husband told me, he's like, right afterwards, you just <laughs> looked at me with this face, and you just said, like, in this voice I'd never heard before, I can do anything now. And he said, and I really thought that you would just, like, 
eat me, like swallow me whole. <laughs> he, said he never felt afraid of me in his entire time with me until that moment. And he was like, oh, my God, I think she's going to eat me. <laughs> well, that's right. And what, and what you're saying, Gina, is also that these hormones activate that, um, what they call an animal's aggressive, defensive mothering behavior, you know. Um, like if a, if a wild animal gives birth and you try and take that the baby away, like she would eat you, right? She would, <laughs> she would bite you and nip you, and of course she would because that's what keeps her baby safe. So that's part of this hormonal blueprint as well. And you know, those activation of those, that's, that's a part of the caretaking hormonal um, script, the, the caretaking um, mothering centers, maternal circuits, we could say, in the brain is part of this aggressive defense of that, that we wouldn't let anyone take our babies away. And the more, you know, the more um, physiologically, the more naturally these hormones unfold, you know, the more of these feelings that we get because it's a psycho-emotional effect within the brain. In fact, within the, we could say, mammalian part of the brain, the limbic system. And it's not just a good feeling, it, it is designed to, you know, enhance survival for mothers and babies. Well, that's that's the thing, too. I didn't, I don't think I could have understood it in, unless I went through it myself with when my first daughter was born, I didn't get to eat or drink during labor, and it was over 12 hours. And when she was finally born, they handed her to me, and I just, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do with her. And I kind of like handed her back and asked for something to eat. And I didn't feel that um, what I saw in the movies and what my friends had told me about, like, oh, my baby, I'm so in love with my baby. And I had had, um, I was induced. I'd never even had, like, a real contraction um, before I went into the hospital that day. I I was spotting, so I thought something was wrong. (laughs) This is a long time ago now. And uh, they said, well, you're going to have your baby today. And I said, I am. And they uh, they said, we're going to give you some Pitocin. And I said, is that dangerous? She said, no, everybody gets it. And so I got Pitocin, and I didn't ask another question. I just assumed it was like uh, potassium or something that it was going to help me because that's what they said. And uh, um, so between the, the hours and hours of Pitocin and then hours of uh, epidural, by the time I had her, I just, I didn't feel connected to her at all, and I felt really bad about that. I owned that. Like, yeah. I must be a bad person. I must not be a good mother. Um, and that's, and um, that's the thing, Jenna, is we do think that it's, you know, it's something to do with us. But, you know, your, your hormonal physiology was messed around, I mean, for a start. And, by the way, if people want to know all the juicy details of what I'm talking about, they can go to my report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. Um, look up childbirthconnection.org and you'll find it there. It's a free download, all the references to everything I'm talking about, which is, you know, um, based on scientific studies. But, you know, what, what you experience there, well, first of all, being induced. So what ha- happens to other animals? We're talking about the switching on of these maternal circuits in the brain. Well, we know what happens in other animals is that it's not just something that happens in labor. There's a whole lot of preparation in the mother's brain. There's receptors that get activated in the brain so when these hormones of caretaking come in during labor and birth, there's a maximal effect. So if you're induced or if you have a pre-labor cesarean, then you're not going to get the fullness of that buildup of the receptor systems in the brain. And in, in some of the animal studies, you know, this only happens in even the few hours before the, the physiologic onset of labor and birth. Now, we can't test that in women. We haven't found anyone that wants to get their brain biopsied tested before labor to see if that's the same case. But we'd have to presume it would be because, you know, it's the same physiologic process. So first of all, the induction is not going to help. Secondly, synthetic oxytocin. We don't have a lot of research about what that does but I'll just quote one study which showed that the more synthetic oxytocin pitocin I'm talking about the woman had during labor the lower her own release of, of her own oxytocin we naturally make it in the brain um, during breastfeeding on the second day after birth which kind of suggests that maybe having this hormone or synthetic oxytocin in labor could actually interfere with the release of oxytocin, which is a caretaking, bonding, loving hormone. So we don't know if that actually happens around the time of birth. There's a lot of things we don't know about that hormone. But the third thing um, that interfered with that experience for Eugenia um, was epidurals. So we know that epidurals reduce um, the release of the mother's own oxytocin probably within the brain. Um, Again, we can't directly test it in women, but what we know is that, you know, this 
system of the oxytocin system as it operates during labor and birth is a, I described it like a snowball effect, you know, like labor is a process that starts small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually becomes unstoppable. And one of the reasons it happens like that is because of these positive feedback systems. So during labor, the more oxytocin that gets released, that triggers the release of even more. So you get this building up snowball effect. And one of the ways that happens is through the sensations that the woman experiences of labor and birth. So those sensations feed back to the brain and tell the brain to release more oxytocin. So if we um, cut out those sensations with an epidural, then that positive feedback loop isn't happening and the oxytocin isn't released within the brain. Now again, it's hard to do these studies in, in women, but in animals we know that an epidural does interfere with the bonding between the mother and baby with those biological aspects of bonding. Sheep that are given an epidural, cows that are given epidurals don't bond with their babies, especially if it's their first baby, you know, if those systems haven't been worked over before, not so affected with subsequent babies. And there are some studies showing that women have had an epidural, you know, have, um, uh, one study showed that those mothers um, put their babies in the nursery more often than with them, you know, um, than rooming in. And that was actually in proportion to how much local anesthetic was in the epidural. And that would make sense because wow. the, more lo- the more anesthetic you get, the more numbing you get, the less oxytocin you get, the less activation of those caretaking systems. Um, as I said, we can't say 100% this happened. You know, we, we haven't biopsied women's brains or we can't actually measure how much oxytocin gets released within the brain. But it's certainly what we'd expect when we understand how hormonal physiology is designed to happen and now what I say about this because I'm not trying to make women feel bad here or have an epidural no. or oxytocin and, and look, sometimes those things are necessary and really helpful but what I think is really important to know is that there's a gap there and that's exactly what you experience there's a gap between what you expected and what other mamas had said had been through you know a physiologic labor and birth without those kind of hormonal interferences and what you experienced and you know what we need to know is that there is a gap and we can do some things so what we want to do is um, put mothers and babies in situations that are going to make those hormones flow that, that, that aren't naturally flowing so skin to skin you know for um, as long as, as, as possible really you know would have helped you and your baby um, early breastfeeding because that releases all those hormones as well um, so those things you know, that help the mother's hormonal physiology um, help it to release the hormones they'll actually help the baby as well you know you switch on the mother's hormones the mother's hormones switch on the baby the baby's skin to skin the baby's relaxed the baby releases oxytocin as well so there's things we can do about it but the first thing we need to know is that there's a gap there and it's it's just the hormones that aren't working it's nothing to do with the mama or nothing wrong you know those things that you experienced are not necessary to think that because now we know that it's just the hormones that are missing yeah, and I think that's important for moms. You know, I really do wish that someone would have told me that, um, you know, had I not opted for those things, that my relationship with my baby would be different. And uh, it, it took us years uh, to to make that, um, what's her name? Do you, uh, there's a midwife named Mary Jackson. I don't know if you've heard of her before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's amazing. And I love I love her voice. She has, like, that really neat voice. <laughs> um, but she talks about, I love her. Uh, she talks about when the mom and the baby, when the baby's born, that there's like this glue between the mom and the baby, and that when they they come together, that it you know it really sticks. But sometimes when mom isn't allowed, or, you know, doesn't get to have that physiological birth and have all of the the cocktail of hormones happen, then it's harder for the mom and baby to stick together. But the good news is that there's there's always time to mend that and, and to come together again and, and to bond together, which I would really like to share with moms. I guess we don't, we're not here to try to make anybody feel bad, certainly at all. In fact, it's the opposite. I really hope that um, we can get the information that parents need to make the decisions that they feel best are, are for their families. And um, I think it's just fair to know um, what happens when you get those things. I think people think, oh, I'm just going to get an epidural because I don't want to hurt but then there's there's this gap in information that they're not getting. Yeah, and a couple of uh, things I'd like to say about that. 
um, you know, through that research that I did for the report, what I came to understand is that the, you know, when it happens physiologically, as I said, there's all these systems that are ready for the hormones to come. There's all these receptor systems that mean that the hormones will work most effectively. So, you know, you could have, as I had with my last baby, an hour and a half of labor. And that hour and a half is enough to switch on all of these things that we're talking about, the reward systems, the pleasure systems, the I can do anything, the bonding with the baby, the aggressive defenses, because there's all this lead up to it, you know. But the problem is when you don't have that lead up, you know, you lose efficiency in a sort of in a biological sense. It's not going to take an hour and a half to, to switch on all those systems. As you say, it's going to take days or months or even years because the system is not as efficient. And the, yeah, the things we can do, as I said, are skin-to-skin and breastfeeding. And I'll just share an anecdote about that. It was actually a story I read in a, in a magazine about a mama who had a caesarean, a pre-labor caesarean. So pre-labor caesareans has all those disadvantages because you don't get the lead-up, you don't get the, um, the pre-labor physiologic preparations. There's a whole chapter in the report about that. Those receptor systems, the body isn't ready, the baby isn't ready. Um, for labour and birth, so there is a big gap there with physio- with pre-labour caesareans, and then of course you don't get the processes of labour and birth that release all those hormones. Um, so you know, there's, that's the biggest gap really. So this mother described, she said, I had two physiologic births. This baby, I had to have a pre-labour caesarean, um, and when I got when the baby came to me after birth. That baby felt really different to my other babies. The baby was different. And that's totally true. The baby's in a different hormonal state as well. All the things I talked about for the mother are also true for the baby. The baby has all these pre-labor preparations so the baby makes the best transition and breathes after birth, all these sort of things. And the difficulty that pre-labor cesarean babies have, breathing is number one. They can have breathing difficulties. So what this mother did instinctively with her baby was she held her baby skin to skin. And she said after three days of skin to skin, my baby was the same as my other babies. And, um, you know, that really highlights for me, you know, short time of labor, you know, at physiologic onset, everything's there. It's an efficient system. You know, it's sort of um, quality control through millions of years of evolution or you could call it God's superb design if you like. You know, and, and that's what happens. But if we miss that, then it takes longer, you know, three days for this mama of skin to skin to get her baby baby into that same and herself as well you know it's mother baby we're one system really after birth just as we are before birth we do this process called mutual regulation where we sort of like recycle each other's hormones you know we're in a calm state our baby's in a calm state you know there's lots of ways that that our, we our babies regulate our hormonal systems but yeah just that idea that um your labor and birth are really efficient ways of turning on all of these systems that we're talking about. And you know, although there's not a lot of research into breastfeeding, we'd have to presume that breastfeeding is also part of it's the same hormonal physiology, basically, and the same thing of the baby being in this ideal situation after a physiologic labor and birth to begin breastfeeding and again it's not well researched surprisingly actually when you think about how important we know breastfeeding is but we do know that the pre-labor cesarean babies are at a disadvantage you know breastfeeding is more difficult and again if we know there's a gap you know we can really support those mamas with skin to skin maybe with a lactation consultant report etc um, support etc I think that was the thing that that really helped us a lot was being able to breastfeed uh, afterwards. Um, As much as it was difficult for me, it was really, um, I think that really helped us a lot um, in the bonding and and getting back to whatever I thought normal was supposed to be. Um, That's right. Sometimes I call breastfeeding Mother Nature's backup plan because if it doesn't go (laughs) well at birth, then all those hormones are released during breastfeeding. So that's that's exactly the hormonal physiology understanding, yeah. Well, the idea, of course, everybody thinks is that you know breastfeeding is good for the baby, and uh, not really understanding that it's more than just feeding the baby. That there's so much more going on than just a, a means to nourish the child. That there's so many other things that are going on in in the act of of breastfeeding or um, nurturing your baby. It's not just food. That's right, and it's a whole package of nurturing because. As I said, we turn on those same hormones. We turn on oxytocin, the hormone of love when we breastfeed, which is also the hormone of the letdown reflex. Um, If you haven't breastfed, if you're listening, you haven't breastfed, this may seem like a strange idea, but what happens is the baby suckles and the stimulation of the nipple causes um, 
sends a signal up to the brain and the milk sort of, we call it lets down, there's a big gush of milk. So, you know, if you're around a breastfeeding baby, they go suck, 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 and then they go gulp, 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 because <laughs> big surges of milk come down. And that's oxytocin, which, you know, is doing these physical, like in labor, it's doing the physical act of what has to happen with the breastfeeding. But at the same time, it's switching on these psycho-emotional, the hormone of love, bonding, pleasure, pain relief, all of those things are happening in the mother's brain as well. But we also have endorphins, which are, as I said, those natural high hormones. They, they're released, they reward hormones, they activate the reward centers. They're released during breastfeeding as well. You know, it's sort of, I say it makes mother and baby positively addicted to each other. And mm. again, it's not just about a good feeling. It's about having, you know, think about any mammal in the wild. If the mother wasn't rewarded, why would she you know, spend all that time and energy looking after the baby. So there's all these inbuilt reward systems for that. And the third hormone, prolactin, which is the hormone that makes that's breast right. milk, again, from nipple stimulation, that's a, that's a bonding hormone as well. In fact, prolactin can even have a, make us a little anxious with our babies. And, and you probably, you know, that may be familiar to listeners as well, that that's not anxiety we have in our babies. I remember when my babies were young, I'd always have these dreams that I kind of left them in a cupboard somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, like an anxiety dream, you know, and it was like, well, that's just my caretaking systems, making sure that I'm so there with my baby, that I'm so aware of where she is, you know, um, or he is, you know, like that caretaking system, that vigilance, it activates vigilance. And it's really interesting because there was a study done in the U.S. actually that looked at, um, uh, that showed that babies who are breastfed or babies who are not breastfed have a 30% extra chance of dying in the first year of life. But one of the things, you know, the surprising things that babies were more likely to die of accidents. And I think my interpretation of that from the hormones is when we have these caretaking hormones like the prolactin, it naturally increases our vigilance, you know, and when the babies start moving, you need that vigilance, right? right so the babies yeah. are less likely to, 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 to succumb to accidents, yeah, probably have accidents. I didn't know that about... Um uh, anxiety with um, with pro, uh, with prolactin. I'm wondering if um, maybe I'm making a, a lot of prolactin with with Jack. I've never felt this way with any of my other children, but when I would nurse him, I would feel very very anxious, um, mm. like uncomfortable, anxious at the very beginning for the first four months of his life, um, and mm. it, it made for a very uh, difficult breastfeeding in public. As much as I, you know. Um, I'm a supporter of breastfeeding in public and uh, for women's rights to do so. It made it really difficult for me to breastfeed in public because I would get so anxious with him. So that's uh, something mm. new I've learned about and I want to know more about soon. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. The other thing they did, well, you know, the, the research, some of that research comes from studies where they've looked at mother's breastfeeding and they've t taken blood samples during breastfeeding. Then they've correlated that with personality, you know, um, characteristics of the mothers from filling out surveys and um, one of the things one of the things is the slight anxiety that goes with prolactin but the other thing that goes with prolactin which is really interesting is they call it tolerance to monotony so mothers who had more prolactin were more tolerant to monotony and again you know that's a caretaking feature because you know looking after a baby is you could say not such an ex well, from, from a mother's point of view it's exciting but you know from the outside it's a fairly routine thing you've got to do all these you know caretaking roles that you know aren't like you know going out to a nightclub or something but you know it's sort of it, it increases that um what has been called ordinary maternal preoccupation it keeps us preoccupied with our babies we're tolerant to the monotony of doing these repetitive tasks with our babies day in and day out to give them that care so these hormones and you know our psychological states interact in you know quite wondrous ways actually and it's all part of that caretaking system because you know, one of the things that I talk about in the report and in my work as well is that, you know, that the processes of labour and birth are designed not just that mother and baby survive the birth. They're designed so that mother and baby survive and thrive and then go on to have more babies who survive and thrive. So breastfeeding has to be successful for that, you know, for all of our four mothers in the wild, for all our mammalian cousins, you know, if breastfeeding didn't work, then the baby didn't survive. So there is this huge, um, you could say, evolutionary investment in breastfeeding, and that's all, you know, intermingled and intertwined with the hormonal physiology of labor and birth because, of course, breastfeeding has to happen straight after birth, so all the preparations are happening before labor and birth. We talked about um, 
the receptor systems that, that make the caretaking behaviours, the maternal circuits switch on immediately after birth. Well, that's true in animals, at least as far as we know. We, again, we can't do these studies in women of taking biopsies of the breast for breast, you know, <laughs> hormone receptors before labour. But you know, we presume that it's the same thing, that all these systems of breastfeeding are getting ready and activated before the physiologic onset of labour. And we just talked about how pre-labour caesarean is a... Is a um, uh, gets you at a disadvantage. You're less likely to be able to successfully breastfeeding after, breastfeed after that. And as I said, you miss out on all those hormones of labour and birth. You also miss out on those pre-labour preparations, which includes increases in receptors in the for these hormones in the breast, prolactin receptors in the breast, according to animal studies. So you know the, this hormonal physiology is designed to you know, enhance survival for mothers and babies at birth, make birth as safe as possible. It's designed to enhance breastfeeding so that that you know comes on as soon as possible and as successful as possible and also to activate all of those caretaking systems so that the mother will give that dedicated care that every mammalian mother gives to her newborn and the problem is you know the only thing that we kind of focus on in our current maternity care system is survival of mother and baby at birth and sure we've got these systems where you know we can you know mess up the hormones a bit but the baby will survive but some of the kind of collateral damage you could say you know, is often with breastfeeding and mother baby attachment just as you described Gina you know that the those systems don't get turned on and you know and then the mother can think it's something to do with her and and the other thing that I came to in the report actually and again this is my own personal interpretation of what I've read is that the, the switching on of the reward centers so that we found our baby rewarding not just at the time but ongoingly um, there was one study done where they actually wheeled mothers into an MRI machine. I don't know if any listeners have had an MRI. You get wheeled into yes, this metal tunnel, yeah. kind of clangy, yeah. <laughs> so what they did is they couldn't get them to breastfeed in the in the MRI machine. But what they did was they played these mothers the sound of their baby crying, so like a stimulus mm. baby. And what they found was when the mothers had had a physiologic birth, that all these parts of the brain lit up in response to their own baby, own baby signals, the empathy centers, the reward centers, the pleasure centers, um, all got activated in the mother's brain. And when they compared that to mothers who'd been through a pre-labor cesarean, and this is like two to two to four weeks afterwards, that, this, that same activation didn't happen. So, you know, what we can say from that research is, you know, it's likely, and the researchers said this, that it's likely that those peaks of hormones of labor and birth that, that I'm talking about activate the reward centers and these maternal circuits ongoingly, yeah. And, you know, as again, I'm not saying that, you know, you're not going to have, you're never going to be able to, you know, be responsive or be rewarded by your baby if you have a pre-labor cesarean. But again, I'm saying there's a gap there. And what can we do hormonally to help mamas and babies to close that gap? And it's all those things we're talking about, breastfeeding, skin-to-skin contact, um, you know, being close to your baby releases all of those hormones. And, you know, and also, as, as we talked about as well, you know, if you are in one of these situations, being patient, really, it's going to take a while to switch all those hormonal systems on because, you know, you, you've missed that, that sweet spot, really, of, um, you know, when it's all primed to happen. It's, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like having a romance. It's like falling in love with someone, you miss the candle at dinner, and it's going to take a little while to catch up, you know, but just <laughs> being patient, really, and trusting your body, trusting your hormones, trusting your baby. Oh, wow. And, you, you know, you said that uh, prolactin was uh, very addictive. Uh, I found that out firsthand when my third baby suddenly just, she just quit breastfeeding, just cold turkey, stopped nursing. And um, I went into this deep funk. And I thought that it was just related to the fact that my, my last baby, I thought she was my last baby, <laughs> was done nursing and I, I wasn't ready for it. I thought it was an emotional thing, but my um, my doula said, no, Gina, that's, um, this is it. She was 18 months old when she just quit suddenly. And she said, no, that's a, that's a hormonal thing. You're, you're missing the prolactin. You were addicted to it and you're not getting it anymore. So it's making you feel depressed. And I yeah, well, well, I'd say, I'd say also say beta endorphins. You know, I talked about the positive addiction between mothers and babies that's released during breastfeeding. Oxytocin as well um, activates the reward centers. It's really a whole package deal, you know, that is designed to to addict us to our to our babies. And I mean, did you find that like being close to your baby helped with that? Like, um, yeah, when the breastfeeding a, finished. Yeah, what I had to do was <laughs> just like, please come and just cuddle with mommy. <laughs> I, I yeah, did a lot of wearing after that where I was I just took her everywhere in the sling just so I could be close to her. And she didn't mind. Well, that's right. Yeah, and that releases prolactin and endorphins and oxytocin. And I'll just mention a, a study that was done of 
skin-to-skin contact between mothers and babies. So they randomised women to, I think it was four hours a day of skin-to-skin contact or just normal care after birth for the first month. And those mummers who had that extra skin-to-skin had lower rates of depression for that first month. And again, we're talking about all those happy hormones, you know, that are designed to make us feel good. And you know, if you think about it, I mean, in evolutionary terms, you know, for millions of years, there was nowhere else for the baby to be except skin-to-skin on the mother. And for some of that time, we didn't even have coverings, you know. But we know that skin-to-skin, you know, we know for newborns, it keeps the baby warm through this, as I mentioned before, mutual regulation where the baby on the mother actually releases oxytocin, which dilates up, um, opens up all the blood vessels on her chest wall and forms a natural, like, pulsing heat for the baby, baby's skin to skin are warmer than a baby, no matter how many layers you put around them and place them mm-hmm. in a you know, plastic box, a skin to skin baby will be warmer. And if the baby's too hot, the mother's temperature will actually cool down. The mother can actually sense the baby's temperature. And you know, that skin to skin releases all these hormones, keeps the baby warm, keeps the mother happy, keeps the baby happy. And of course, you know, that, that when the baby's in contact with the parent, the baby knows that they're safe in this kind of deep primal sense. You know, a baby who's not in contact with the mother is you know, according to their, we could say, hard wiring through these millions of years of being out in the wild, that baby knows that they're at risk of their life. You know, if we if we were in the wild and we put our baby down and turned around, the baby might not be there. You know, my friend mm-hmm. was a, a midwife in the Sudan and she, she said, yes, that's true in the Sudan, the baby would be taken by a snake, you know. So these, mm-hmm. these um, the, this um, urgency that our babies have to be held and carried is like hardwired into their brain. It's what had them survive through millions of years. So, you know, carrying your baby is very soothing and reassuring for the baby as well and, and settles all those hormones, reduces stress. And again, when the baby's not stressed, all these happy hormones like oxytocin can come in. So I have a question for you about epidurals. Uh, I was uh, talking with another doula in one of these Facebook forums, and I had shared something about epidurals, and she said that the information was outdated, that the studies that I was quoting were 20 years old, uh, that, you know, this was ancient information in a field that moves and changes. Um, She said that it has, you know, nothing to do with slowing down labor. Um, How I I know that you you are like one of the experts on epidurals. Is are there newer studies? Is there anything new out there that um, that shows that epidurals can slow down labor or that they affect labor in any way? Like right now, the the thinking from what I'm seeing is that midwives and doulas are starting to think that um, epidurals don't really affect labor like they quote unquote used to in the olden days. Well, these are very controversial areas, and of course, there's a lot of vested interests uh, from people wanting to say that the epidurals are fine and harmless, and um, you know, uh, from lots of points of view. So, we don't. The, one of the problems, Gina, is we don't really have good quality studies on these things. So, for example, do does epidurals increase the risk of cesareans, which is kind of a consequence of what you're saying? And again, the studies we don't really have good studies on them. Um, what the best evidence says is that a woman who has a, uh, an epidural is more likely to require synthetic oxytocin. The second stage of labor is definitely slower. That's the best, you know, systematic review from the Cochrane. I, I can send you a link to that if you, um, if listeners want to find out more about oh, yeah. that. And, and if we think, and, and there's also, you can see in the report, also studies showing that epidurals do reduce oxytocin release. So there's a graph in the, in the report actually showing what happens to oxytocin levels when you give an epidural and they end up, um, I think in one of the studies, about 50% compared to women who've had a normal physiologic labor and birth because, of course, oxytocin goes up. So it reduces oxytocin, slows down the second stage of labor definitely, um, increases the risk of synthetic oxytocin being required in the first stage of labor. So all of those things add up to me to say, yes, it does slow labor. But, of course, what generally happens for women who've had an epidural is that they get synthetic oxytocin and that kind of compensates for the loss of their own oxytocin and can speed labor up to, you know, however, however, high you turn up the pitocin basically you know you can get the woman's uterus to work really hard and, and overcome that loss of some loss of endogenous their own oxytocin and you can make labor you know as fast if you want to do that but of course it's an artificial way of doing it and you haven't overcome 
the loss of the mother's own endogenous natural oxytocin release because the thing to say here is that if we do that, you know, and we do um, approach it so that we can make labour the same length as a woman without an epidural by using high levels of synthetic oxytocin, we may have had that effect, but we haven't actually helped the mother's brain oxytocin because when we give synthetic oxytocin, it's basically exactly the same molecule as natural oxytocin, but it doesn't cross into the brain. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And you know, mamas out there have had synthetic oxytocin will notice because you don't get those calm, connecting, pain-relieving effects, which is unfortunate You just when you need them with synthetic right. oxytocin. Again, doulas, you know, um, maternity caregivers will notice, you know, a mother who's had this, Synthetic oxytocin doesn't usually feel happy and contented and she usually needs some other kind of pain relief. So, you know, in a sense, you know, you could say maybe it doesn't slow labor down because we're giving these things to compensate and to overcome, you know, the natural drop in oxytocin that happens with the epidural, but it does mess up the woman's hormonal physiology in particular. We're not just oxytocin, we're talking about but beta endorphins, possibly prolactin. It messes with the um, adrenaline nor adrenaline as well. It really is, you know, one of the quotes I use is from the World Health World Health Organization and they say epidural analgesia is one of the most striking examples of the medicalization of birth transforming a physiological event into a medical procedure and that's exactly because of all this disruption with the hormonal physiology that we talked about. Well that's the thing too I wonder if um, moms are getting or parents are receiving true informed consent when it comes to an epidural. Yeah, that's right, and I think you've got it. You know, there is, as I said, some vested interests there. You know, it's kind of bread and butter for anesthesiologists, and you know, they. It's it's and also like as caregivers, look. You know, I know this myself. We go into this because we want to help people, and it's very confronting to think that some of the help that we give might actually be harming. So, you know, there's a lot of we could say. Um, barriers to us really being upfront and direct even with ourselves about some of the impacts of what we do as caregivers and I think you know without without um, being negative towards anesthesiologists I mean they're doing the best they can and you know if you read what they write in medical journals from their point of view I mean that your job is to relieve pain in every other aspect and then they take this you know idea that no one should be in pain into childbirth which I think is an appropriate an inappropriate use of that idea and then say, you know, childbirth is the most extreme form of pain that anyone should can experience and we should be getting rid of it. No mother should experience this. And, you know, that's one perspective. But the other perspective is that, you know, it's it's not just about relieving pain. It's really about what's happening underneath that to all the hormonal physiology. And there's a lot about epidurals actually in my report. So, again, I'm going to recommend that and I'll send you the link. Oh, childbirthconnection.org, you know. It's a PDF document. It's free, as I said. You can go through it and you can just put in the keyword epidurals and see all the things that I say about epidurals and all the research there. And you can see that graph showing the reduction in oxytocin. And now we were talking about the um, those effects on attachment and I quoted the animal studies and there are some human studies again they're older studies but you know from the hormonal physiology point of view the thing is something comes in like epidurals and there's all this research everybody gets excited and researches it and even when we find you know some concerning effects people kind of stop doing the research or maybe the funding bodies don't want to re- don't fund the research anymore and then we kind of think it's all okay you know we think it's changed but then it's true that the modern epidurals do have lower concentrations but you can still have quite a high exposure if you have an epidural for a long time and secondly you know if we look from hormonal physiology if we're numbing the the, if the epidural causes numbness it's going to reduce oxytocin okay and that's that's the thing like so there's there were so many studies that were done and so what you're saying is like listen they've been done that there's no there's no need to do more like there's no drive there's no um uh, I, I'm just I'm I'm just beside myself because I can't I feel like I can't present um, my clients with any like new data about um, epidurals uh, from like studies. What I'm saying. Well, you can certainly look at my report. I mean, those studies well, I, of I the reduction of oxytocin <laughs> are, are in the last ten to fifteen years. Um, ten years, I think. There's several of them. So yeah, no, def- I mean, there's definitely, and the, and the thing is also, you know, physiology is physiology. Like we don't need a new study to show that, you know, we release oxytocin and labour. You know, physiology is the way our bodies work, and those things don't tend to get repeated either. So, 
you know we've really I mean in my work I, you know I quote the best studies that there are which might be older studies or might be new studies you know I think it's really important to realize that you know we're talking we're not talking about randomized controlled trials we're talking about how the body works we're talking about physiology mm. yeah and I didn't know um because I, I, I did read your report um, and I'm reading up on um, how the hormone, uh, the prostaglandin F2 alpha, that it, uh, is adversely affected by epidurals. And uh, why, would, why would that be an issue <laughs> for my mm-hmm. listeners if they're not really... Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's part of it, prostaglandins. I mean, there's a whole lot of complex, um, you know, levels of physiologic functioning, you know, there's what happens in the hormones, there's what happens in the cells, there's what happens in the biochemistry, and it all adds up to, you know, pro-contraction. It all adds up to feeding into these cycles of contraction. So um, what we know is that oxytocin and prostaglandins, we talked about the snowball effect, the positive feedback yeah. cycles. So oxytocin and prostaglandins also have positive feedback cycles where one increases the other, which increases the other, so that's part of this whole, like, snowball effect um, leading to the onset of labour as well. So, you know, some of what we don't understand is not, you can see in the report, there's not a lot of research on prostaglandins and the effects of prostaglandins on hormonal physiology, even though they're really wide, widely used now, um, which is unfortunate because so, it's kind of hard to, you know, to give really good um, advice about prostaglandins. And there are some studies showing problems with breastfeeding with prostaglandins, that it can affect prolactin release. Again, you can look in the report there. Um, well, one study, but you know we're not really looking and um, at, at the levels, you know, and, and to the extent that we should be given these, particularly these really widespread interventions. You know, one of the things I hope with the report and this work is that people go, oh, like that could happen. We need to research that because um, there's really big gaps in the research. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's what it seems like. Um, and as far as uh, the epidurals go, what about um, how an epidural, uh, having it for a long time, uh, can affect the breastfeeding relationship? I don't know that moms are told that, hey, you know, if you do get an epidural, it might affect uh, your success with breastfeeding. Again, this is like a $6 million question, Tina. It's a bit like this cesarean question. And it's not, you know, like it's really surprising. Epidurals are so common. And yet the, the research on epidurals and breastfeeding is really not very good. We don't have a lot of good studies on it. And, you know, one of the problems is a structural problem. Like we're going to do those high-quality, what we call randomized controlled trials, where we get like a 100 women or, you know, and we say 50 of them have an epidural and 50 of them don't. And we see what happens with breastfeeding from a, like a scientific perspective. That's the ideal way to do it but of course we can't randomize women to nothing we can't say oh you know you're random you know you've got pain or you're in that group where you get an epidural you've got pain or sorry you know we're going to randomize you to nothing so the women who get randomized out of epidurals generally have opioid drugs like fentanyl like meperidine and they can affect breastfeeding as well so that makes it really hard to sort out the effects of epidurals on breastfeeding and again a lot of you know you could say vested interests that want to say that breast you know breastfeeding isn't effective but there certainly are studies showing that it affects the mama and again we, you know we wouldn't be surprised by that when, when it interferes with the hormonal physiology that affects the baby and their ability to suckle um, you know so it's there's there's a good critique actually in my report of all the epidural studies that were done up to that point and again the conclusion I reached about that was the studies that showed that um, mummers who had an epidural didn't have a disadvantage or not a statistically significant disadvantage were those were done in those areas where there was a lot of support for breastfeeding the babies would put skin to skin on the mother straight after birth um, breastfeeding was initiated with the first one to two hours um, and there was lactation consultant support as well. So again, like I was saying about the about the cesareans, you know, physiologically, hormonally, there's a gap there. We're interfering with, you know, those hormones of breastfeeding, oxytocin, as I described, possibly prolactin, not well researched, possibly um, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, adrenaline, noradrenaline for mothers and babies. You know, so we would expect there'd be some kind of impact on breastfeeding. It's not well researched. Some studies show yes, some studies show no. But my interpretation of the research, again, you can see in there, is that you know there is a gap. And you know, if you've had a, an epidural and you're really keen to breastfeed, then you know make sure you have your baby skin to skin um, on after birth, and also um, you know lots of opportunities to breastfeed. And again, being patient. You know, if the, we've disrupted with those hormones, you know, we've missed that kind of 
sweet, efficient spot of labor and birth are switching on all these systems with natural hormones, then you know it's likely that it's going to take longer. You've got to be more patient to, to switch on those systems outside of that. Hmm. And it's just, um, it feels like there's just so much uh, for for parents to know. What about, like, w- let's say someone's listening right now who's expecting a baby, <laughs> and she's just like, whoa, just floored. Like, this is this is so much to know. What what? How can you sort of maybe simplify <laughs> for new moms? Like, what what is the like? Say maybe the first the three things that they need to know. Above above all else, if they want to have um, a normal physiological birth. Well, I think the first thing is that your body knows how to do it. Like our bodies are superbly designed, as I say, and all these things are designed to unfold. Um, you know, when we start interfering with it, it can have unintended consequences. So the first thing would be to trust your body and support your body's physiology as much as possible by, you know, limiting interference with the whole thing. And some of the ways that you can do that is to choose, you know, a low technology model of care. So, you know, midwife, home birth, um, I'm not saying everybody has to have a home birth, but that is the model of care that's been shown to increase the chances of physiologic birth significantly because, you know, you're in your home environment, you're feeling private, safe and unobserved as I talk about in my work, you know, so that these hormones can flow because, you know, um, the the hormones of labor and birth of having a baby are really similar to the hormones of making a baby. So, you know, choosing the sort of conditions where you can successfully make a baby is quite a good rule of thumb for having a baby. Um, and the other thing I'd say is if you're going to hospital to have your baby, then definitely take your own midwife and or doula. You know, a doula is one of the best investments that you can make in um, in the birth. And, you know, as, as we're talking about, you know, that has huge implications longer term, you know, switching on those attachment and reward systems, you know, that help you to, to get pleasure out of looking after your baby. So, you know, what you, the effort that you put into supporting physiologic birth will really pay off tenfold, a hundredfold, you know, over the years of your parenting and, you know, in the early um, days and weeks and months as well. So, you know, choosing physiologic birth and um, physiologic caregivers and doulas, which have been shown through medical research to increase your chance of a physiologic labor and birth. And the third thing I'd say is that, you know, if, some of these things are required and look certainly as we talked about sometimes they're medically necessary sometimes they're really helpful you know um, just recognize that there's a gap there and do what you can to support you and your baby through that gap and the main things there is skin to skin and breastfeeding oh and if I could just squeeze in one more question before we're done I could talk to you all day long I wanted to talk about and so for my listeners who are maybe brand new, you don't know that uh, I served on the board of directors for Attachment Parenting International for five years, and I am I'm a big AP fan, and I uh, wanted to talk about uh, this idea of uh, breast sleeping, uh, as Dr. McKenna calls it. He says there's no such thing as infant sleep, there is no such thing as breastfeeding, there is only breast sleeping, and... Um, I wanted to talk more uh, about that, about that idea. I think a lot of parents are really terrified of uh, bringing the baby into bed with them. It comes up all the time in the last 10 years of being a doula. Every single one of my clients ask me about that, like, what do you think about this? And that's their their biggest uh, fear is bringing that baby into the bed. Our culture in particular, uh, it seems like it's a very taboo topic. Um, Could you just... Um, I know it's hard because we only have eight minutes left. But um, uh, Well, I think it's really interesting that, as you say, it's kind of a taboo topic and we're not meant to be doing it. But when they do surveys, I find that 60 70% of parents do take their babies into bed with them at some time. So if you are doing it, you're not not alone. There's a lot of breast sleeping (laughs) happening out there. And of course we do because we know that physical comfort for all the reasons I've described, you know, is really important for our babies. We know that a baby sleeping by itself can have those stress systems turned on because as we said before in the wild you know for these millions of years of evolution and the hard wiring in our baby's brain says to them if they're by themselves you know that they're in danger and so that being next to the mother's body or caretaker's body is the safest place that they can be so 
you know, sleeping with your baby, bed sharing is actually our, you know, hormonal blueprint as well. And all the things that happen between mother and baby that we talked about also happen during sleep. So the mother and baby mutually regulate each other's temperature. They mutually regulate each other's sleep get into the same sleep cycles with your baby so when your baby's sort of in light sleep and nuzzling around to feed you're in light sleep as well it's not like you know if your baby's in the next room they cry and you wake up in shock like you know where's the fire kind of thing so it's all designed you know it's designed as a system to sleep and breastfeed with your baby breast sleep is, is a great name i love that and i love the work of um james mckenna so yeah, so we're designed to do it, and we're designed to mutually regulate it. You know, and we also know that when you sleep with your baby, you know, it increases the um, success of breastfeeding. We feed our babies more in the night because it's so easy. You just roll over, feed your baby, uh-huh. go back to sleep, and all these hormones. You know, they're all relaxing, soothing hormones. It's Mother Nature's best toddy, I say sometimes, to put us back to sleep. So you know, we really are designed to sleep with our babies, to breast sleep, and the way that a breastfeeding mother will sleep with her baby. And this is actually from the work of a UK. A uh, researcher, another anthropologist called Helen Ball, who went into families' homes with an infrared camera and filmed mothers and babies sleeping together in the natural habitat. And she found that when mothers were breast sleeping with their baby, they, they put their baby in this particular position. So the baby's face or head is at breast level, the mother's leg is up. Sort of so the baby can't go down, sort of forming a, a barrier at the bottom. The mother's arm on the same side as the breast is also up, so that forms a barrier so the baby can't move up. So the baby's in this kind of little cradle position where the mother's formed a little nest for the baby and you know that means that the baby's not going to you know get up underneath a pillow which is not a safe thing for the baby it's not going to you know end up underneath the bedding which is not a safe thing for the baby and you know it's forming this little nest and you know my interpretation of the literature on bed sharing is that you know if you have a healthy mother a healthy baby there's no smoking there's no alcohol there's no drugs the mother's breastfeeding the baby that the you know the risks to mothers and babies are no higher than for, for a separate sleeping baby and you know the baby we also know that the mother regulates the baby's breathing i don't know if um, people are aware of some of the SIDS recommendations is to have the baby in the same room as you because you know babies naturally when they're little they don't have such a regular breathing pattern it's not uncommon for them to stop breathing and if they're in the room with someone who's breathing they sort of pick up the rhythm just like we do with we're sleeping with our partner and we kind of get in the same breathing rhythm so all of those things are safety aspects of of bed of um breast sleeping as james mckenna says it so i think i think you know, sleeping with your baby is a really good thing to do. And Helen Ball also did some interesting research where she followed mothers and babies. And, you know, there's a point at which if your baby's sleeping separately to you and you're, whether you're breastfeeding or formula feeding, there's a point at which you get really tired from getting up in the night to feed your baby. Mm. And, you know, she said what mothers did in those situations, they did one of three things. They either went to sleep school to try and get their baby to sleep through the night they put their baby on formula because babies on it's harder to digest and babies on formula don't feed so often, although the mothers do get more sleep if they're breastfeeding. I can talk about that too. Or they put the baby in bed with them. You know, And of those three options, the far best you know, option for the baby and the mother ongoingly and the baby's long-term health and well-being from ongoing breastfeeding, we know that the longer the mother breastfeeds, the healthier the baby is lifelong. Um, the, the best solution is obviously that the mother and baby sleep together and breastfeed together. So, you know, if we added that extra um, <clears throat> thing about breastfeeding success into the formula, I think we'd find that co-sleeping would look or bed sharing would look come out being actually safer than, than separate sleeping. Mm. Oh, well, unfortunately, we have run out of time, which is such a bummer for me because I have been uh, geeking out this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Buckley, for everything you do, uh, and thank you for coming on to the program, and I would love to have you back anytime. Thanks, Gina, and thanks so much for, you know, for this program and for the ability to get this information out to mothers and dads and families, and, you know, like, um, you know, well done to all of you out there. It's a really big job having a baby, looking after a baby, and mm-hmm. um, so good on you. Indeed. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody today for listening. I will be sharing all of the links and websites that Dr. Buckley and I talked about during the program over at Progressive Parenting uh, Radio on our Facebook page. Uh, So make sure to go on over there and get to see everything that we were talking about today. Um, And uh, many thanks again to our sponsor, uh, our sponsor over at doulabook.com. 
Uh, we may not have reached our fundraising goal, but no worries, y'all. We still have a donate button. Uh, all you have to do is go to ProgressiveParentingRadio.com and donate if you like what we're doing. Uh, you can come and see me in person. I'll be in Portland, Oregon on November 14th and 15th. Uh, I will be doing our Flock Yeah Mini Birth Conference. And we still have space for two more people. It's for midwives, doulas, hopeful doulas, birth nerds, and parents. Um, and uh, that's it. I hope to see you there. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. If I ever do anything I want to be so good to this little light If I ever wake in the night I want to know 